of The Outer Edge. I'm Mike Mott here with my good pal Tim Schwartz on the edge of weirdness, on the edge of the unknown, on the edge of absurdity sometimes, but we're here. And uh, it's <laughs> Sunday. Especially <laughs> the edge of absurdity. Exactly. It's Sunday the 25th where I am, the 26th where Tim is, but soon I will join him when this, in this strange time warp that we call uh, the central time zone. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, actually, I'm I'm on the I'm on Eastern. I know. That's what I'm saying. I'm going right, right. to catch up to you in a little bit. Oh, okay. So, but uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, we're here on the outer edge. Yes, we are. We're, we're trying not to fall over. That's the right. Edge. That's right. Yep. <laughs> How are you, Tim? Uh, oh, not doing too bad here. At least we don't have uh, uh, snow. That's Unlike good. Our, Unlike our friends on the East Coast, I haven't talked to Tim Beckley today. Who's you know, I mean, he lives in Manhattan, and yeah. they're you know they're talking about. Uh, I heard on the weather they're talking about really getting it getting it bad there. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully they uh, won't get bad. Well, I mean, you know, they have uh, what do they call it uh, with big cities like a heat sink? I think is uh, is what they refer to it. Where yeah, yeah, you know, you can get you know like ten ten feet of snow all around the city, but then uh, the city will get maybe a frost, right. you know, because of the hot air that's constantly rising up. And I'm sure Tim Bickley would admit <laughs> that he is probably you know one of the major sources of hot air. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for that. <laughs> He will allow me to say that, you know. So other people, I'm not sure he'd, he'd let them say that, but but he he would allow me. <laughs> now, now, has Tim's new show premiered yet on Saturday night, or 
Happy no, Queen. it's it'll it's going to start the first of uh, next month, okay, February. Cool. So yeah, uh, and and well, that'll Beckley, be a lot of fun for him. Yeah, that's right. Tim Beckley will will be the host of uh, Unraveling the Secrets, 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 Secrets. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we and we wish him we wish him well. That's right. That's right. I, I can't think of a of a of a better person to take over. I mean, you and I did it for quite a while, really. And then mm-hmm. I had done it, you know, before that with some other guys. But Dennis Crenshaw started that show. He and Rick Osmond. And, you know, Dennis is a big Hollow Earth uh, theorist. And it's funny that it seems to have come full circle because Tim Beckley has also written extensively on the Hollow Earth. So it's it's sort of uh, uh it's sort of fitting that 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 Beckley's taken over. Yeah, though uh, you know Tim is not going to he's not going to concentrate solely on oh the, of course you know, not. on the Hollow Earth. I mean you know that that would make for well that you know <laughs> uh, the Shaver mystery uh, all kinds of uh, UFOs you know they they had some similar. Um, Research areas once upon a time. So, mm-hmm. oh well. Speaking of UFOs, now uh, the 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 UFO that you cited, well, it was, it was like uh, late last year. I mean, what? Yeah, like it was December October the twenty second, I believe. Twenty second. Uh, now it's uh, it's come back. Am I correct? You yeah, seen it we've, again? we've seen it off and on and glimpsed it. And uh, you know, the first time it was my my elderly mother and my son and myself that saw it and got a really good look at it. Um, and earlier this week, my son and one of his good friends that he goes to to uh, junior college with, they came in and got me, and we stood outside and watched it. And they watched it longer than I did, and uh, it was uh, out there uh, close enough that you could see that it was an object with lights all over it, and it was flashing, strobing, different colored lights, especially red on the bottom and and stuff. And I watched it for a little bit, and then I came inside. And I told him if he got closer to call me so I could, you know, get a picture or something. And uh, when they got finished watching it, their eyes were real irritated. They had headaches for, you know, several hours afterward, they, you know. But, uh, you know, you've really? heard that. Oh, huh. yeah. Yeah, you've heard that before. And, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it didn't bother me. But then again, I didn't stand out there as long as they did. And I have glasses, you know, maybe, you know, with uh, protective coating. So maybe that helps some. But uh, then tonight, it showed up again. And uh, this time, um, I had some other people here that, that are friends of, of mine, um, male and a female, and uh, Ryan, and my son, and myself. And we went out there, and we, I, we, I was going to try to take some pictures or video of it. And uh, my friends also saw it, hmm. which is very interesting. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and so I did manage to get some video, but the quality is not that great. I don't really want to put it out there yet because... All you could see is really this weird light shape strobing, but it does strobe throughout the video pretty much with a pinkish cast. But what my viewfinder was seeing and what my eyes were seeing were two different things. I mean, you could see the, um, with your naked eye, you could see like a, a structure on top of it jutting up and then a little uh, sort of a, a line of lights uh, flickering, blinking, going down to the right, like on a, um, maybe like on a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Almost like it has a, a, a rod that sticks down and it's got lights on it flashing. And then underneath there's a, a um, and this is how we know it's the same one we saw before. Underneath it's a, there's like this, uh, bulb or, or upside down dome shape that's reddish pinkish colored and it sort of flickers and flashes. Hmm. So on the video, you could definitely get that flicker and flash, 
of the uh, of that bulb. It shows up mm. throughout mm-hmm. the, the video, even the video's not that great. It's just basically a light shape flickering and flashing, but it's kind of like a strobe. You saw it though. You know, you're one of the lucky few. So so far, but yeah, it just sort of a just flicker, 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 strobe, 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 strobe like that, you know, and, and uh, it's very strange. Totally silent. It jumped around the sky quite a bit. Um, it would move. Like well, I went down to got my camera out my, to take some high resolution video. Just as soon as I took my camera out, it winked out. It was gone. Hmm, really? I said, "Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Well, okay, whatever." Turn around and come back up to the house. It reappeared, but this time it had moved over. You know, like a quarter of a mile, almost behind some trees, right behind them. Mm-hmm. But you could see it. But I couldn't get good video of it. So then I walked over 50 yards in another direction so I could get a clear shot of it. And then during the time that I moved to that position, it had receded, you know, way back over some hills. Right. And it was much further away than it was before I walked over there. So I got as much video of it as I could from that position, but, you know, not like I wish I could have. But uh, it, it's definitely something strange. There's no doubt about it because it keeps coming back to the same area. Over and over again, and we did notice again that it was flickering on and off throughout the evening, early evening, you know. Uh, yeah. And again, kind of like the original time we saw it the first time, when airplanes would come over. And there were a lot of airplanes coming over through here, mm-hmm. and when the airplanes would come over, it would either disappear, or it was like really, really dim, way down, and just kind of flicker and lower it. It was like it got lower and lower and lower during the time we were out there. So it was like almost almost sitting on, you know, almost looked like it was sitting on the hilltops. It was so low and just kind of dimly flickering. And especially when the airplanes would go over, it would get really, really dim or it would disappear altogether. So whatever it is, it does not want air, aircraft to notice it. You know, hmm. it was, I mean, it, every single time a plane would come over, it would do that. So... Interesting. Very wow. strange. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the next time you see it again, uh, ask it if it'll come closer so you can take its picture and see if it responds. I've, you know, I've heard of other, you know, uh, people who see UFOs, you know, they'll say that it's almost like it can tell, you know, when, when you're, when you can see it and, and are trying to take its picture. Well, what I'm waiting for is, is, uh, somebody physical to show up so I can obtain some permanent um, evidence in form, you know, like like a decapitated head or... <laughs> yeah, good luck or, with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, that's... Uh, people have tried to do that uh, with this associated phenomena for a long, long time, and they just yes. end up, uh, you know, they just end up frustrated. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, yeah, well, I'm not saying well, that, we, you know, we know that this that this is a phenomena phenomenon that uh, it doesn't play by any rules. It doesn't play by the rules of physics, um, behavioral psychology, anything like that. I mean, it's something totally. Um, People think it's fully within the realm of science. It's not. You watch this thing like tonight jump around the sky, jump from one side to the other, boom, boom, and it was over there, you know. I mean, that doesn't conform to any rational idea of how the universe is supposed to work, you know. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, there's something more to all this. 
<laughs> no, that's just, yeah, it just goes to show you, though, the universe is, uh, is not rational. Right. <laughs> not rational at all. There you go. That's right. So what's, well, what's uh, been, oh, go ahead. Go I was ahead. to ask you what's been going on in your neck of the woods this week. Everything good? Oh, yeah, not, uh, not too much. I, uh, just, uh, setting up our, our, our interview for tonight, um, which is, uh, you know, something that is, is always near and dear to our heart. Uh, we have, uh, a Ross Hamilton who, uh, um, uh, is, uh, I mean, I guess that right from the very, very beginning of his life, he's been fascinated by, uh, American Indian history and, uh, uh, has gotten into investigating um he refers to them as the star mounds like the uh, uh the serpent mound in ohio and uh, uh and, and other um you know mysterious uh, uh what's supposed to be native american structures um, right. You know, he's been on, uh, like us, he's been on the History Channel's uh, Ancient Aliens. He was on the uh, show was In Search of Lost Giants, uh, because he also, um, he, he's done an academic paper um, about the discovery of, uh, of giant bones uh, throughout uh, the United States. A, a tradition of giants, the elite social hierarchy of American prehistory is the name of his paper which and it can be uh, it can be found online uh he um he, he he's written uh, two books about the serpent mound the mystery of the serpent mound an illustrated guide to the serpent mound of adams county and in 2012 he published star mounds legacy of a native american mystery so i'm looking forward to talking to him about that uh, tonight i've been to the serpent mound myself uh, right. A couple of times, and oh. uh, I tell you, it's a it's a it's a very interesting structure. So the it'll, uh, it'll be interesting to uh, uh, to 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 talk to Ross and see what his take is on it. <laughs> yeah, sounds good, man. Sounds great. Yeah. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, go to our break now? And when we come back, we will have uh, uh, Ross Hamilton. Does that sound good to you? Sounds great. All right, so everyone out there, you are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. I'm Tim Swartz. Uh, with me, of course, is Mike Mott. When we come back, we will have our guest, Ross Hamilton. So stay tuned. <laughs>
I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction, are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the internet. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. All right, welcome back to The Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz. Tonight we have with us Ross Hamilton. Ross, how are you doing tonight? All right, how are you men doing? 
Uh, we're doing fantastic. Uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, getting up in the middle of the night <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, to be with us. Well, thanks to your listeners, too, or mm. up in the middle of the night or wherever you are, what, whatever yeah. time zone. Uh, well, see, we we have it divided up. I'm uh, uh, I'm on Eastern time, and then Mike is on Central time. So, uh, but uh, okay. but it, but it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, we get uh, we get a lot of listeners also on our archives. So, you know, if you're if you're if you're listening to us now on our archives, don't worry what time it is. Just sit back and enjoy the show. <laughs> well, well, Ross. Um, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to first ask you. Um, how did you first get interested in Native American history? I grew up in Ohio, and um, my uh, my dad had grown up in Ohio as well on an old Indian reservation. We um, had. Uh, pretty much created our own trail of tears here in Ohio back in the latter part of the of the 1800s, early 1900s, by stripping out all the people that used to live, especially in the northern Ohio area, the mm-hmm. Wyandotte tribe mainly. But um, we just didn't want Native people around, and uh, and there was a great deal of regret after we after we did that. It's kind of like Hitler shipping all the Jews out of Germany or consigning them to concentration camps. And we did something very similar. And uh, as a result of that, something was just taken from the land. And I remember my, my dad, who had never actually met a Native person. He grew up uh, in Wapakoneta. He always was haunted by the Indians, and he always wanted to know more about them and and the mounds that were in Ohio, and uh, what what was it that we had done, and and what had their lives been like? And so he inculcated that mystery in me, and he himself really never got a chance to investigate, except from taking us us kids uh, to uh, Fort Ancient. And uh, which is a large earthwork here in Southern Ohio, mm-hmm. about three and a half miles in in length, and uh, we we never even got to explore the whole earthwork. We just ate a picnic lunch, and that was it. Then, of course, later um, I met with some real Indian elders, and uh, I had been doing research at the Serpent Mound in Adams County, Ohio, and uh, from there. I just got saturated with Native wisdom, Native lore. So I want to thank Vine Deloria, Jr., author of a number of books himself, uh, including God is Red and Custard Died for Your Sins, <laughs> which sound like <laughs> funny titles. But um, he was able to uh, get plenty of readers by putting those titles out. And you can still get his books today. Vine was a... Uh, a college professor uh, um, in um, Colorado. He taught law, and I believe he taught uh, history. But um, he was also the unelected chief of chiefs for the entire United States and Canada, at least in my opinion. And uh, his, uh, his love for Native people did not know any tribal boundaries. 
Mm. And he was able to cross over to white people and explain to them just exactly what we had done and why it's taken us so long to try to get back on the road to achieving real peace and understanding of those people that were once the owners of this land. So, yeah. So, so when you were growing up, did you have any interaction of any kind with with native people? Closest I ever got was watching old Tom Nix westerns, and oh, then man. Um, I I worked with one old native guy at a furniture construction plant here in Cincinnati back when I was in my late teens, of course I'm in my mid sixties now, and. Uh, he was one of those people that uh, Ohio had had brought back in from Oklahoma, out in that area where we had sent all these poor people. Right. And uh, they they just decided, well, it's time to to reintegrate them to our society, so we'll just bust them in here and, and give them a few bucks and pay for their apartments. Oh, and really? Got them jobs, and and uh, so they became uh, gardeners and. And um, maids, we used to call them maids, the women that would come in and work for the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they work in the local factories. But basically, they just had a high school education or less. And this poor guy, he just kept his mouth shut. And the kid, and the, well, the men there at the place used to call him the chief, you know, and they, they have a good laugh about him every day. But he always laughed with them. And... Uh, they never, they never really got on him too much. They just called him the chief, you know, and had a little laugh in the morning, and and that was it. And apart from that, they respected him. And he just never caused any trouble. But I remember him, I remember him very well because I'd never seen an Indian before. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, if, if I had lived out in Texas or New Mexico or California or up in Oregon or even the Dakotas. Washington State, I would have probably known quite a few more. But here, an, an Indian is a novelty, and to this day, there aren't any really recognized reservations in Ohio. Mm-hmm. I just it makes you it makes you wonder how how he felt, you know, and the others being basically you know repatriated back to Ohio. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, Ross talking about you know the the Trail of Tears. Now that was a big thing down here in the South where I am, uh, with the Sh- Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Creek, all these uh, the so-called five civilized tribes, who yeah. basically attempted to uh, live in a European manner, and they were still uh, disenfranchised and and taken off their property and and had their every you know even their farms and their lands taken from them. And you know I. I you know, this this is it's one of those dichotomy things that, you know, I, I look at Andrew Andrew Jackson. You know, in so many ways he was a great president and, and a great military mind and, and leader. But then, what he did to the Native Americans, in my mind, it, it pretty much negates all the good that he did, because that was an Andrew Jackson move. You know, that that whole um, thing, that whole disenfranchisement was really his answer to the so-called Indian problem was mm-hmm. to just pick them up and move them somewhere else. And, uh, boy, it's just, it's just terrible. But, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Creek, um, and I think one other tribe were the five 
civilized yeah. tribes, and they went right. out from Texas over to over to Florida, and uh, they were um, very compliant with the message right. of the early What's... U.S. Congress, and they decided they were going to use their lands and become productive, peaceful members of American right. society. Right. And they, they adopted the white man's way of dress. They spoke flawless English in many cases. Yep. And they started the plantation system. Yes, they, even, they did. Yeah, they even had slaves just to be, you know, on the mark with what the U.S. was doing. Well, um, you know, when, when you look at, okay, I don't know if you're, are you familiar with the, the ethnographies and the studies of folklore written by John Swanton? Uh, Actually, I, you know, I'm not familiar with Swatton's writings because I'm still uh, right. walking through several other authors. Yeah, but uh, I'm, I've, I've got him on my notepad. Yeah, he, he did a book of, of, of folk tales or, or myths and legends of the uh, and traditions of the southeastern Indians, which is really fascinating, and it's a very honest look at Native society. You know, from the mouths of natives who were telling him their folk tales, he collected. Um, directly from them. And, you know, it's interesting because we have this concept of the noble savage and all this sort of stuff, but they were just people just like anybody else. And, you know, you had groups of that were nice people and you had other groups that weren't so nice. Mm-hmm. And before we came here, if you, if you read that ethnography, you can kind of read the – apparently it was like constant internecine uh, intertribal warfare constantly. And even with some of these tribes, you know, you weren't considered a human being by that tribe, by another tribe, unless they kidnapped you and made you a member of their tribe, whether it was through marriage or, or whatever. At that point, you became a whatever, which usually was, you know, synonymous with being human. Um, so they had a very different way of looking at things, but, um, they had some interesting stories in there about giants and account, accounts about giants and, and things of that nature. Um, of course, we're talking about the mound building culture with the southeastern indians um but you know when when you go back and you look at we, we look at what we inherited you know when when we came here there were large tracts of land that were abandoned like cahokia you know it, where do these people go it's just as if they just up and left and i i recently saw a thing in a uh, a national geographic article online i guess in the last couple of years where they have determined that before northern europeans and that would be the english the Dutch, you know, the, the French, before those people arrived here, that the native population of North America for like 50, 60 years had been decimated by a smallpox epidemic. And they traced it back um, through various records and stuff and, and to one slave, one African slave, who was put ashore in, in on the shore of Mexico he was put off a Spanish ship because he had smallpox. And they believe that this created a, tra- a chain reaction that swept through Mexico, what was, you know, what, what is now Mexico, and up eventually into North America. And it didn't take long, really, if you think about it. I mean, 50, 60 years. Um, but that's why when we walked in here, you know, it was like, wow, look at this. Look how beautiful and these, look how perfectly prepared these fields are. You know, well, somebody else had already gotten it ready to plant, you know. Somebody had been farming that land for centuries, but they weren't there anymore. So the, the, the people that we met here were not real well prepared to resist, I guess is a good way to put it, because they've been decimated. Had you heard anything about that? Well, there's quite a bit of history that, um, 
has remained unwritten. I think you're talking about John Reed's one. Probably, and, uh, he, yeah. He yeah. was born, he did, he did, he passed away in 1958. Is that the same guy? No, no, this would have been much older. This would have been a much okay, older one. He was born in 1873. I'll have but, to look uh, and see if it's, was he an ethnographer for the, for the Smithsonian? Yeah, he was a, uh, he actually worked in American anthropology and was under that the may be, it may be the same guy. Friend, yeah, maybe the same guy. Boas. Right. He worked with Frederick Putnam and uh, Charles Willoughby of the, of the and, uh, Peabody. Yeah, yeah, that is the same guy. Okay. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that, and, that, that. But, you know, it took me a long guy, time to find I was just yeah, going to say, it took a, me a really long time to find that book. I mean, that book, to find an older edition of one of his books is very hard to do mm-hmm. anymore. So, but they're fast, yeah, it was get, fast, you, fascinating. You can actually get his books online. Uh, you can, oh, you know, cool. Actually, uh, if you ever wanted to go that route, look up uh, biographical memoirs. And so yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? What, what, what gets me is all these uh, mound building cultures and all the rest of them. I mean, they they had these myths and legends of people who were giants, um, giant hairy people, giant red headed people, uh, mm-hmm. cannibal giants. All these different traditions that the Native Americans had, and th- there was usually a, a you know this this theme in their folk tales that they were here before we were. I mean, the Native Americans. Um, they were here a long time ago. They're the original people, all this kind of stuff. What are your thoughts on that? Well, our research uh, on the giants, on the very tall people, began back in um, the late 20th century. We, we uh, This is already 2014. But in 1999, um, I was doing my usual uh, meditations, and um, I had sort of an enlightened epiphany that um, if I really wanted to do some interesting work, I should uh, go ahead and just research the very tall people of prehistoric America. Well, I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, now, Vine, my friend Vine Deloria Jr., had written a book called Red Earth, White Lies. And in that book among other things, a fascinating read if you ever want to pick up something really interesting. He let it be known that since he was a very young man, he'd been collecting newspaper clippings and articles on extra-large skeletons uh, that people had sent to him or that he had come across. And he had a whole scrapbook of them. And so he included some of his favorite quips and quotes uh, and accounts in uh, Red Earth, White Lies. And Vine was always very selective about what he put in there because he knew his readership would be mostly Native people, at least at first. And so he didn't want to mislead anybody. And um, one of the gifts I got from him was the fact that Native people tend to not lie uh, compared with, with white people, especially white people that had to deal with uh, Native people, and that when a Native person says something, it's usually true, or they know it to have been true from whom Mm -hmm. they learned it from. And so there's a lot of trust 
you can put into native accounts of the tall ones. And Vine was very much like uh, Yogananda when Yogananda started uh, um, exploring India to find out about the holy men. Uh, Vine began to visit the holy men of uh, Western North America to learn as much as he could. Guys like Frank Waters and uh, and Bill Tallbull and uh, I, I mean we could probably go on and on. I had the uh, the pleasure of meeting uh, several of his friends, um, including Floyd Westerman. Of course, is a famous Hollywood actor, but he was also a famous Indian activist. And all of them, all of them believed in the tall ones. So I partnered up with a with a gal upstate uh, who was uh, really good at at the internet, and I, I didn't even have a computer at first. Right. This is back, you know, back way back when. And uh, but her husband was, you know, a computer programmer for the military, so uh, she was able to get online and visit all these libraries and so forth. And before you know it, within a month or two, we had come up with eighty or ninety old newspaper accounts and magazine accounts having to do with the unearthing of. Giant skeletons, mostly in Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, right. Pennsylvania, uh, some in Michigan, and then uh, also in, in Illinois and parts of the Deep South. And then, um, I guess it was one morning, she hit a gold mine. And it's to this day, I'm still stunned by what she found. But um, we were swimming in these accounts, sharing them with Vine, and he was just going, oh, my God, you've got more accounts than i collected in my whole life. I said, yeah, this is really amazing what we can do with the Internet. And um, she said, men, I went into the Smithsonian archives, and I found account after account of the Smithsonian digging up old Indian graves and mound works and pulling out skeletons of men who were at least seven feet tall and several of them were approaching eight feet in height. And these are it's the Smithsonian, right? Right. And so we just milked the Smithsonian for every last account we could find get our hands on. And then uh, Vine was just so pleased with all this and so amazed by it that he decided he's going to have a conference to get it on, you know, a permanent roll call of history. Right. So he held this conference up in Washington State and he invited um, one of his close friends that he had worked on, a white man, uh, Dave Thomas, who had been, um, uh, well, still is, I guess he's the director of archaeology at... Uh, at the New York uh, Metropolitan Museum, and um, or excuse me, the New York uh, Museum of Natural History, and uh, and then he invited many Indian leaders too. And so we had people coming from every tribal tradition, and lots and lots of, of uh, professional people, all converged on on um, Frank's landing up there in Washington. And uh, we got our airplanes paid for, and um, they treated us to uh, 
yes, three days, three and a half days of uh, of the hotel, motel, which was very close to the school where we had the conference. And, uh, and then we just started uh, trying to unravel this mystery, and everybody contributed to something. And uh, we were just amazed at, at how how little of the folk traditions um, had uh, had preserved, at least um, uh, verbally, on the giants, but that many people had knowledge of the little people. So um, the conference ended up being kind of split between talking about the giants and talking about the little people. But we did get a lot down on record. And um, following that, um, I began to write and create a narrative for all the accounts that we had. And what overwhelmed me and and um, what I tried to put into the book, emphasis, wasn't the body parts being extraordinarily large. Oh, look how big this guy's skull was or how how long this uh, disarticulated skeleton was when they put it back together. But rather, it was why all these skeletons are missing now. And so I focused on that for quite some time and came up with with uh, a number of reasons why. And and uh, the reasons um, are basically six or seven in number. And they cover the territory from, well, many of these bones were already deteriorated because of their antiquity and uh, ended up with... Um, uh, you know, after going through them, all the graves being robbed and people paying high prices for the long bones and the skulls so they could show them off in their private collections. This is back in the 1840s through the 1880s. Um, they all gradually became stolen or lost or, or broken apart, mainly broken apart. Many of them were repatriated. And so now the... Uh, the fact that these tall, extraordinarily tall people who were the heads of their uh, clans and their tribes, um, the evidence for their physical uh, bodies, along with most other Indian skeletons that were disinterred, are completely absent now. Right. So, pe- so people, people are, you know, there's a big controversy. Um, what the heck happened to all the skeletons? And the anthropologists, who you know are academics by nature, um, they tend to go into uh, their classrooms, and when a student asks them, "Well, what about all these uh, tall Indians that used to live here in prehistory?" and they say, "That's just a fairy tale." Right. And and the kids the kids say, "Well, well, no, we've read a lot about." It. They say, "Well, what are your sources?" Are they academic? And then there'd be a big silence, and the student will say no, and kind of put their head down, like, here's my professor, he's going to give me a grade. And and the professor looks at him, and he says, look me in the eye. And the students have to look him in the eye, and he says, it's not in the data. And the kids take that to mean it's not in the literature. Right. It certainly is in the literature, but... It's been pushed out of the very, very narrow and unprofessional data stream of all of our major universities and colleges. So it's not only not taught, but it's not believed in anymore. Right. So we were very happy to have Dave Thomas come to the conference 
because he and just a very small handful of other um, anthropological, archaeological leaders know that we did in some way create a holocaust of these giant skeletons. And then the story goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you'd like, I can talk a little bit about how deep it goes. But sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Go for it. Okay, well. Drink of water there. One of the things that we discovered in the Smithsonian Archives was an old document that was put out by um, John Wesley Powell. Uh, J.W. Powell was the first officially recognized director of ethnology at the Smithsonian. He was famous because he had been the first person to explore the Grand Canyon and note, you know, its physical parameters and so forth. And he got um, a number of other Smithsonian agents interested in going out west and um, beginning to uh, take down the testimonies of the of the uh, of the various tribal traditions out there as well. But when he came back to Washington. And I think he was also, a, you know, a captain in the Union Army. Um, he um, took up this this position, which was already a good old boys' club by that time, semi-private, you know, national museum, but semi-private nevertheless. Elected officials, and uh, they were uh, kind of charged with keeping the truth, right? That's what they used to uh, believe themselves, and they still do to some extent. These museum heads and teaching heads, they they consider that they're allowed to keep from public awareness literature and um, speech that mm. they feel is inappropriate for the public to know about because it might in some way impinge on the national interest or call into question their authority. And uh, when your job depends on it and the money you're earning to keep up your wife and your kids and your house you will lie and they all lie hmm. I can say that unequivocally that with uh, with very few exceptions where the truth has been stressed these men lie and they do it for reasons that they consider to be of national interest so one of these articles that we uncovered was when there was still some glibness infecting the tongues of these men. Now, Powell had grown up among Native people, and uh, he had a great deal of sympathy for them when he was a child. But when he grew up, and after he uh, began to get into the old boys' club and the United States government and became a big shot, he decided that... Uh, Native people and his experience with them had to be put into perspective. What he learned when he was a child from Indian people was that back thousands of years ago, and I, I believe we're talking about Middle Archaic period, which is about seven to 8,000 years ago, if you can imagine how long ago that is. Mm -hmm. There was a great country here, greater than Samaria, which began to flourish slightly after this time. 
it had a single ruler, one king, and it had a single religion, and it had a national manufacturing interest of ceramics and brick, and it hmm. mined copper, right? and it mined lead, and it also had a certain amount of coal that it could work with, and uh, amber, diamonds, and other semi-precious stones were mined, and flints. And this was all done under the auspices of, of, of a civilization that had purportedly descended from an even greater civilization that stretched from the Hudson Bay all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. With its flanks out on the prairies, from the Dakotas down all the way to Texas, and to the Atlantic Ocean, from Nova Scotia down to the tip of Florida. And this country, which I believe was called Manitoba, after uh, the proto-Algonquin tongue, which we know very little about, if anything, these people were of very large stature, and there was many of them. They were what the Bible would term gods. They led godlike existences. They had a very natural way of living, which they passed down to their descendants all the way to the coming of the white man. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, their way of living was what we would call supernatural because they had figured out a way, and we think that they received this technology from an Atlantean culture right. that had just gone kaput about three or 4,000 years before. The glaciers had melted and many of those exposed islands in the Atlantic Basin uh, were covered over. And so many of the people fled into the eastern United States and eastern South America and Mexico, into Europe and into Scandinavia, into the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and in Africa. And so these land masses became populated um, by the survivors of a golden age, the remnants of a previous golden age. And they moved into these areas that I just described, which had been previously inhabited by what we call indigenous people. Right. So there were indigenous native people here throughout the Americas. And they were primitive. And they're, they're the remains of people that archaeologists find today, going back, you know, 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 years, 14,000 years, they find fragments of pottery, very primitive living, um, you know, um, uh, all throughout Europe, Africa, the Middle East. It's pretty much the same story until you get to Samaria about 6,000 years ago, maybe 6,500 years ago. But we're talking about another civilization that existed from the Hudson Bay down to the Gulf that was populated by people who still carried 
the knowledge of what we call spiritual science. Mm-hmm. So they were able to civilize the entire eastern North American region with a technology that didn't create wires, didn't create systems of polluting generations of electrical current. It didn't pollute the waters. But what it did was through paying attention to the energy that was emanating from the magnetic field of the Earth, which which they called the spirit of the Earth, quite obvious to them because their eyesight wasn't as polluted as ours. They were able to harness that serpent energy which normally combines with the, with the earth as it rotates through the magnetic field and produces a very, uh, a very powerful but non-fatal positive magne- or electromagnetic charge which makes things grow. It's basically the life force and we can hardly even detect it with our instrumentation, but um, they knew how to to draw it together to mountaintops and to artificially draw it together by creating great um, alignments with stones and earth to specific points, and there they would create what they called manitous or totems. And there are and science at creating these totems and manitous and temples was so sublime that with time they were able to harness and perfectly control lightning Hmm. all throughout our region. And they did it with a sort of nonchalance that um, caused them to become deeply integrated and indebted to the power of Mother Earth. They lived and thrived with it because with Mother Earth coming through their aid, they were able to bring down the power of the sky. They were literally able to milk the clouds of their energies, which clouds, of course, are basically a negative charge. They're uh, little droplets of water, and between each molecule of water that's suspended in the cloud is an electrical charge, keeping it that mm-hmm. way. So when they accumulated these massive positive charges, like Serpent Mound, for example, is one of those old sites that used to collect the energy. But they for- focused it. Now it's just an earthen mound. But they had hardware they put on top of it, which we now think is buried in the caves beneath Serpent Mound. But uh, when when the hardware was there, And when they had everything set up so that the energy flowed to the serpent from miles around, they collected a wallop of positive energy, and it just sparked from everything, from from the plants and from the trees. And they had such a a powerful draw into the sky that the lightning didn't even strike anymore. It came came just streaming like like shafts of light like shafts of sublime, fantastic, uh, almost like the aurora borealis was being just pulled out of the sky, and it created luminous rains. Right. And the people lived and drank these rains and waters, and they poured through the streams, and it wasn't long before the entire earth began to produce 
fast-growing and long-living vegetation. The trees all lived to be much older and they grew to be much bigger and they produced leaves that glowed subtly in the night. And the starlight was much clearer and the sun during the day didn't burn them anymore. And the reason for that was because the land and the feedback to the land that the manatees were producing was creating this stuff through the interaction of the positive and the negative that we call vitality or life force, and they called it mana. <laughs> and there's, there's legends for mana all over the world still. But right. they manufactured so much of it in Ohio, especially in the beginning, spreading into the south and in the north, eventually throughout the whole Manitoba, the great Manitoba, that the whole area of land became uplifted as on a diadem. And they called that area of land Turtle Island. And they were proud of it. And for a thousand years, some say 2,000 years, they lived and ate and didn't fight with each other. And they grew to be nine feet tall, ten feet tall. Many of the women were eight feet tall, even pushing nine feet tall. And they were beautiful. They were perfectly proportioned. They could walk across a field of grass and hardly settle the dew because they were light. They were made of light, these people. And they had the power of the soul, the power of the one unific creator embedded in their hearts so that when they spoke, they spoke the truth and the earth reverberated in that truth. And where they came together, there was peace. And they had this wonderful garden that spread the whole length of this country. And they began to invite people from all over the world by special invitation to come and see what is possible to have happen. Well, this same event hadn't really occurred anywhere else in the world. And so they called this place New Atlantis at first, the other the people around the world. And they, they here people were trained, and they also were giving of themselves. They were sending ambassadors to these other countries. And we're talking 7,000 years ago. Sending ambassadors, men and women, to these other countries, where they were, in some cases, intermarrying with the, uh, with the royal people over there. And they were having offspring. And these offspring were allowed to visit the homeland and they became the sons of God because the gods lived in America. And uh, these sons of God were mighty men and they helped their people uh, throughout the world. This is all through ancient Europe and all through you know the Middle East and the Far East and the Near East, all through South America were the legends and tales of these supermen that were the offspring of the gods, these, you know, God-realized people. And um, they thrived very well. And then suddenly, and nobody really understands why they did this, but the ruling class, the elite of the North American continent of 
of Gitche, Manitoba, they decided to take away the crystals that form the bond between heaven and earth, the nexus points between where the clouds were being blood from and where the earth was being enlightened from. And the interaction between earth energy and the sky energy ended abruptly. And there was no more luminous rains. And the lightning began to strike the manitous and break them apart. And there was a, an effort to relieve the manitous and all the temple structures of their precious metals and their jeweled um, harnessing points. And they removed them to caves and secret repositories deep in the earth, usually near the stations where they had been operating. And the people fell into a sort of unenlightened state, and the the elders, the gods themselves, retired into the etheric world, where the uh, where many of the highly evolved Atlantean people already lived. You know, like the elves retired in Tolkien's stories, same thing. Right. It's just an analogy. Hmm. So what happened then is a very sad but true story. The people of Gitche Manitouba, the sons of God, uh, began to um, have uh, a relationship with the uh, family heads who were there basically relative to them, many of them, because they were also a very tall stature, being of the stock of the North American people but inbred with the local people so that they had indigenous language and indigenous leanings. And so the North American people still wanted to continue the trades their forebears had. So they continued the practice of exporting uh, their, their um, crops, their, you know, the exporting their foods, <laughs> their you know, drink, and their copper, and their, their fabrics, and what have you. But they were no longer able to send them the, the, uh, the luminous fruits and the blessed waters that they had charged and put into special caskets that would hold the charges in the, in the trips across the ocean. And they, uh, they lost their vehicles of air, and the great birds, the great rocks, and the phoenixes that used to be ridden across the oceans they were no longer available. They too retired beyond, behind what was now a veil, separating the third and fourth dimensions from the fifth dimensional perception through the ether. Right. It wasn't long. wasn't long at all before there was a rigid enforcement. Now these people in North America called themselves the Ali, which meant the elect of God, the Allah. And, um, the elite among them were the Alihana, the uh, enlightened or the swans of God. And they um, had set up a lineage of great uh, sort of like God kings, but their inner eyes had already been weakened and they could no longer see cosmically like their forebears had. And yet they were still attempting to look through their third eyes, but they were long more and more unsuccessful at it. So they more and more had to dictate outwardly, and they created an army of brave and powerful warriors who often stood nine and ten feet in height 
and could shake the earth when they walked. They never called the Alabama, and our state of Alabama is still named after their descendants. Now, the Alabama were such a frighteningly powerful army that the Alihana was merely able to threaten their youth, and they were able to keep their trade routes alive and were still able to collect tribute. <clears throat> and they were thinking about taxing their former allies around the world because they considered them to be colonies of New Atlantis. But that's when the war between the, the, the old ones began, the old uh, sons of God. And it wasn't long before uh, the Alabama did go to points in the Far East, to China, what we call China, and Japan, and uh, into um, the, the Middle East and down into Africa. And they fought foreign battles. And every time they came home, and this happened over a period of just two or 300 years, Every time they came home, there would be fewer of them because they would be killed in these foreign battles because there were sons of God and other places that although they were descended from the sons of God here, they were no longer paying them felty. They were like our early colonists. They didn't want to have anything to do with England. So before you know it, there were no more trips. And... Um, then shortly after that, there was a massive invasion from the Huns. These are the, the early descendants of Attila and Kublai Khan. And they came en masse, and they attacked Great Gitche Manitoba, and they almost overwhelmed. But they sued for peace, and uh, the, the, um, the people from the east most of them went back, but many of them intermarried. And uh, so our native people then descended from a lineage of, of, uh, of several different tribal and indigenous traditions, which melded into one tradition that had many aspects. And so when the white man came, there were still many different skin colors, but generally most native people didn't shave. Didn't, most mm -hmm. of the men didn't have to shave because they were descended from these very ethereally uh, and evolved Eastern uh, Oriental tribes. And also, they had a great deal of the blood of the original Manitous, the Manitou system people. Right. So um, this story was completely lost. The Smithsonian related bits and pieces of it, and then they took that literature out of the data stream. And so we were lucky to, to come across it. Wow, that is a <laughs> that that is just you know incredible that you have managed to 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 collect this information. You know when uh, there obviously has been attempts throughout the years uh, to keep it secret. Yeah, I was fortunately I was initiated by an eastern an East Indian master of spiritual science. Mm -hmm. Kapal Singh back in 1969. And I learned from, they have a, a saints over there. These are men that uh, overcome the limitations of their own minds and their bodies and learn to rise above body consciousness, just like the gods of old used to be able to do. Now, India is the, still the seat of culture. 
So when the lights went out in North America, the whole holy scene moved into the Himalayas. Mm. And they continued that lineage of enlightened spiritual masters, but they began to incarnate as mortals and yet used the spiritual science to, um, uh, you know, through the guru system and through the yogic system to right. evolve themselves and to realize saints and, and living masters while still living in mortal bodies. Now, many of you have heard some of the stories that have come out of India and how they do give birth to holy men and supermen to this day. Mm -hmm. But um, they have integrated so expertly with the world culture that they don't perform miracles except in private, and they don't display any supernatural ability unless it's an emergency. But the truth is that the whole holy scene um, is moving back to North America because excuse me, this phenomenon of the Turtle Island rising is returning to us. And what we've learned is that um, using this system of spiritual science, which I was initiated into by my master, we can tap into ancient histories because there are a number of libraries located, I mean, right here in North America, that aren't accessible even by the um, by the Illuminati, I guess you would call them, even by the elitist, wealthy people of our zone because they're unenlightened. They don't have the third eye open. They control right. the money and the gold, and that's how they think that. That's why we think that they're you know the Illuminati and you know and so forth. But the the real truth is that in order to gain access to these libraries. You have to be pure at heart, and you still have to be as a child within to enter in to the kingdom of God. And the same thing is, the, uh, I don't want to go biblical on you, so I'm not, but the same truth uh, is uh, very much a part of, of finding and getting access to this kind of information. So I knew the only way I was going to get access to Indian knowledge was to go to one of the greatest Indian speakers, one of the oldest incarnating men who had done service to Indian people. And that individual was the reincarnation of the great peacemaker himself. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm going to tell his name is because he's passed away now, because he would forbid it otherwise. His name was Jake Swab. Now, you may or may not have ever heard of Jake, because he was uh, an Iroquois chieftain. He passed away um, a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. In this century, about a number of years ago, we miss him dearly. But Jake's responsibility in all of his previous lives has been to embody as the great peacemaker. So um, he was uh, uh, both uh, the Ganawida and he was also... Um, uh, the great peacemaker of the early um, col colonies tradition, who uh, um, his name was uh, Pasakanaway, and he was the one that um, that uh, prevented the Iroquois from attacking the Lenape people and allowing some of the first English settlers not to be molested. So he traveled from the English to the Lenape to the Iroquois and everybody loved him, and he stood 
over seven feet tall, hmm. and he had a massive frame. Now, you go back 900 years, 800 years, excuse me, before, and he had embodied as uh, the great peacemaker, Daganawita, whose name is so sacred that they don't even use the name Daganawita. And he was the one that worked with Hiawatha to bring peace to the five uncivilized tribes up there in New York and Canada, stretching, you know, across the length of the modern-day state. They were all bloodying each other's heads. And um, they went from tradition to tradition and walked that distance, and they spoke to the people. And because Hiawatha also had a background as a holy man, and because Daganawita uh, was the registered at number one, um, then they were able to pull off this miracle just as Pasakanawa had. Now, after their deaths, other things happened. Of course, um, we know what happened in North America. The colonists just keep, kept on coming. Mm -hmm. But, but Pasakanawa had the inner vision, and he could perform miracles, and he did so in front of people. And uh, Peacemaker did the same thing. So I went to Jake's swamp. I was introduced to him by Vine uh, Deloria, and I asked him, and I knew how to do it because I had already been trained in initiation from my master. I asked him for initiation into the Native American, and I was refused, of course, because uh, Jake only initiated Native men. Right. So I petitioned him on the inner. You know, I, I went in my prayers, and I meditated for hours and hours on end and I would get into a state of of uh, practically you know begging and would remain quiet and sit and then after uh, some time after a number of days pulling the stunt um, of uh, refusing to take no for an answer hmm. uh, Jake came to me uh, on the inner and he looked just like he did on the outer. His, his face was flushed with light. And he kind of spoke out loud to me. But just like he was in real life, he had this voice that was so melodic that he just put me at peace. And he had to weep. I'm sitting here, you know, in my own home, hundreds of miles away from him. And he asked me a couple of questions. He said, what do you want from me? And there, was, there were other men with him, and they were, they were all listening in. And I said, I want nothing but the truth about what happened. And I could hear them in the background. Some of them were doubting me. And, they, and then he asked me, what's the truth about you? And I was shocked. I wasn't expecting that. And I said, I'm nothing but an unworthy white man but I really want to know. And I apologized. And then I heard a general acceptance and the air cleared. And then Jake spoke to me one more time. And he said, that's the one true thing you've ever said. <laughs> and then he gave me initiation. And I wept for three or four days to clear out all the crap that kept me from loving without any reserve Native people. I realized I had a great deal of racial prejudice. 
before that time. Mm-hmm. But I managed to keep the door open through tears. And that's the only way you can get rid of prejudice. It's embedded in all of our hearts and souls so deeply that we may think we're free of it intellectually. And we're proud to say, oh, I love black people or some of my best friends are Indians <laughs> and so forth. But it's a lie. Because when you're really tested, you always fail. And you have to weep to get rid of that hatred. You have to speak through your own tears and you don't you don't do it any other way. And so after years of tears, I have gotten to the point where I have developed a sort of receptivity, if you will. And uh, I've learned these histories partially from reading and mainly through meditation. But it's just amazing what you can piece together from reading 10% and meditating 90% because the tears and the cutting through the darkness in your meditations allow you to, to be, to allow the impressions from everything you've read to be loosed away so that you see the real content in things. So you're saying that 90% of, of what you've uncovered is, is via meditation or, or, um, some sort of mystical source? Yeah, to, to most people, you would say it is from an internal source. Mm-hmm. But to me, it, it's from a real source because I know that we came from within before we were born. Mm-hmm. We were externalized as little children when our souls were put into this body near the time of, of the birth of the body. And all of us have to go back. And so it behooves us if you take that archaic term, it behooves us as men and women to go deep within ourselves and try as hard as we can while we're still alive and kicking in these bodies. Try to get back to see where you came from before you were born and familiarize yourself with where you will be going back to, which for most people... uh, Mike, before you ask your next question here, right. uh, we we need to go uh, and uh, take a, a quick break here. So uh, let's uh, try to remember uh, what you were going to ask there, and uh, let's, right. uh, let's let's go ahead and do this. And uh, uh, we'll we'll be right back. We're talking with uh, Ross Hamilton. You are listening to the Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. So stay tuned for more. I'd like to direct this to the distinguished members of the panel. You lousy corksuckers! You have violated my Fargan rights. This Samanambachin country was founded so that the liberties of common patriotic citizens like me could not be taken away by a bunch of Fargan ice holes like yourselves. Thank you. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 
954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application, Mobile Talk Radio. Imagine having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. You'll be surprised how easy it is to use. So I think what's going on here is that Obama is banking on unemployment falling. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Talk Stream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Now you can share the topics that drive the discussions of your favorite talk shows with TalkStream Live's topic-driven talk radio. List and promote real-time talk radio topics or post the topics that you want to hear. Hot topics are tweeted and retweeted and include simple click-to-listen audio links. The future of talk radio is topic-driven talk radio. Available now at TalkStreamLive.com. We're rewarding you for something you already do, listening to us. It's Radio Loyalty, and it's an easy way for you to get free stuff. All you do is sign up. Go ahead and click the banner now. You'll earn points as you listen, points you can trade in for great products and services in the Radio Loyalty store. You can earn even more points when you share your favorite station with friends on Facebook and Twitter. Radio Loyalty, it's free to sign up, so click the banner to join now. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. I'm Mike Mott here with Tim Schwartz and our special guest Ross Hamilton. And when we were going to, when we were going to break, uh, well, as we came back from break, um, I believe that we were playing some music. Uh, uh, my daughter Audrey singing and playing little, little music for you guys, and uh, That's right. and so on. And also, I want to give out the phone number seven eight six two four five eight one two seven seven eight six two four five eight one two seven. If you want to call in and talk to Ross or ask him a question. But uh, Ross, when we, before we went to uh, to break, you kind of gave us a long, um, in depth look at, at what you believe you know prehistory was like here in North America and who the people were who lived here. And I had a couple of questions um, about that, if you don't mind. Um, one of them was about the guy that said that you reached out to him in a meditative state to get answers. But 
did he ever confirm to you in his physical, real presence that he responded to you in the meditative state? Yeah, I got I got a call from Jake not long after that, and he invited me up to his lodge, and uh, he used to hold uh, um, sort of meetings and uh, and special uh, special occasions. Up, uh, he had a couple of lodges up in New York, so I uh, I accepted his invitation. Um, he, he basically paid me uh, about everything that it took to rent a car and and get back. Um, but um, uh, it was kind of the fulfillment of a prophecy, as it turned out, because apparently um, Jake and I had been friends before in another life, and we had worked together before. And in this life, we were brought back together just to renew an old acquaintance. And, okay. So, and, so who who told you the, who gave you the prophecy that you had been friends before in, in another life? Um, that that came to me from a couple of sources. Um, one was through Jake, and another um, was through uh, uh, another author um, mm-hmm. who triggered in me, a guy named Ken Carey, who had written uh, uh, several books, actually. Uh, Return of the Bird Tribes was one of them. And uh, he he didn't confirm that to me, but he, can, he was the one that originally conveyed it. Now, um, Jake knew of Ken Carey as well, and the two of them didn't agree on some things, so I didn't want to really bring Ken into it, but uh, he's a player too. Uh, the other the other actual confirmation was from uh, my own master uh, on, the, on the inner, who uh, explained to me the relationship I had and what my fate was in this life and why I've been made to write the books that I have. Uh, in order to prepare the ground for uh, Turtle Island rising again. Mm. So, who, who, who is your who is your your master on the inner? I mean, I mean is that like well, your spirit guide or what? What is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My master's name was uh, Kapal Singh. He was a uh, a, uh, a Sant Mat master. Uh, you can look him up on um, on Wikipedia if you want, or you can mm. go online. Um, you can just type in Sant, S-A-N-T, Kripal, K-A-R-P-A-L, Singh, S-A-N-G-H, because he was brought up sick. And uh, and you can read about him. He was the uh, one of the founders of the World Fellowship of Religions. And um, he uh, had a, a, a very a very decent ashram in, uh, in India. And he uh, went on uh, two or three world tours and I okay. met him on, on his final world tour, and that's when I received initiation from him. He and I corresponded for up until his death, so I had letters and so forth, in the same way as I corresponded with Vine. So, so uh, what what would be your your interpretation, for instance, your account, which you know, which you have received internally or by means of uh, meditation or channeling or whatever you want to call it. How does that jive with, say, for instance, Steve Quayle's view of prehistory of North America and his view of what giants were and what they were doing or what the Native American legends actually say that the giants did, like the Nahulo or some of these other uh, cannibal giant tribes that used to actually hunt and eat Native Americans according to their own legends? How does your, how does your uh, Native American, North American cosmology sort of 
line up with that? Well, um, the answer to that is, is a long one, but I'll try to make it as brief as possible. You, you've heard of the Nahulo. That, that, was, a, that was a name right. that, that was uh, created off the word Nunehi, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, which is <clears throat> a group of people or a race of people that live in the, in the topmost tier or dimension of, uh, of the North American um, Native uh, Indigenous uh, people. And uh, they were the ones that withdrew at the fall of Gitche Manitouba, and they are the ones that Native people call the Watchers. They've watched over Native tribes mm-hmm. from the get-go, from the time the Manitous were dismantled and the process between earth and sky to etherealize the landscape uh, was discontinued. Um, well, you know, according, time, I was just going to say, according to uh, Choctaw tradition, the Nahulo, the, in the original form, they were described as horned giants. They preyed on the Choctaw. They ate them. The Choctaw had to hide in the Nanawaya Cave Mound to escape from them and fight sort of a, uh, a sort of uh, guerrilla warfare using poison darts and arrows in order to, to finally defeat them. They, they had armor um, with the uh, Choctaw called metal skins or tough skins that they wore. This is all part of their original tradition. So I'm, I'm trying to see how these two things can possibly line up. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to that. It's, it's, it, I just okay. have to give you a little background. Sure. Maybe, um, maybe I talk too much, but uh, um, in order for you to really get a, an understanding of this, because... When you're talking about Steve Quayle, or you're talking about this Choctaw legend, which I'm very yeah, well, and I, I got my Choctaw legend from Choctaw, so that's, that's okay. yeah, yeah. Well, they, you know, it's on the internet too. You can read it. Mm-hmm. Um, these these people, um, when when the lights were turned out, okay, we're talking uh, six thousand years ago. Most of the people, most of the ruling people, were still very tall, mm-hmm. but they were gradually deteriorating spiritually and intellectually. And they were going back to a very primitive lifestyle. Whereas before, they were living a natural lifestyle, but they were um, supernaturally healthy and wealthy. They were tall. They lived to be hundreds and hundreds of years old, just like the biblical Eden. So when the light was taken away, they began to deteriorate. And they began to diminish in height, as well as intellectual and spiritual capacity. Their bodies began to shrink, and many of the animals also began to shrink. The giant buffalo, the giant boar, the giant beaver—they all existed just you know mm-hmm. seven, eight thousand years ago. That they all are shrunken now, and as they began to shrink, more and more of the indigenous people that they had originally, the giants had bred with. Their very still vibrant and strong gene began to restore the height and the general genetic um, protocols that had existed before the gods began to interbreed with the indigenous folk about you know seven eight thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and more and more the indigenous people were smaller and smaller, and they began to live together while the the very tall people began to group together as well um, to try to survive because the little people didn't like them. They feared them, 
Okay, by little people, you mean normal. You mean normal size. People. Normal size, what we call yep. normal size. Right. And they they so they began to uh, fortify their villages, and they kept out the big animals. The vine even said that you know as late as just five six thousand years ago, the people were terrified at night to go out because of the the amazing monsters that still roamed and lived around here. The Cherokee talk about them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in their stories that were collected by James Mooney of the Smithsonian. But anyway, when the Lenny Lenape, who were normal-sized people, came about 2,500 years ago, maybe 2,300 years ago from the West, they were stopped at the Mississippi River, almost dead in their tracks from going any further east, which they thought it was prophesied for them to do, because there was a race of giants living in the Ohio and, you know, greater Mississippi Valley here in the east of the Mississippi. Right. So they asked if they could come over. The, the This is the Alihana people. The, um, and they called themselves the Allegheny people, the Allegheny, which is a root for root river. Mm-hmm. And they said that they could pass through if they wanted to, but when they did... They were attacked by the Allegheny, who thought that they were uh, a Trojan horse. So then the Lenape retreated back. They had a big meeting with another tribe, the uh, Minkley people, and they decided they were going to guerrilla-style fight these Allegheny people. And so they did. It took them 100 years, according to the legend. But they eventually routed them and... There were many, many giants among them, and many of them fled out of the Ohio Valley and went down south. They followed the Mississippi River. They followed the Kentucky River. Right. They just went downstream, and they set up some of their camps. And um, as they went, they were um, generally attacked by Native people, and uh, they, they couldn't use the fire anymore. And so they had to hunt without cooking their food, and so they began to really become very, very primitive, and they eating raw meat and, um, you know, always on the hunt and always looking over their shoulders um, because, they're, they, you know, there were just small tribal groups of them, of these very tall men and women and children. And uh, so uh, when they got bold enough, they would attack a village. And uh, they they would either kill all the people or just route them and try to, to set up someplace where they'd be safe. Well, they were never safe. There were too many smaller people. So in the meantime, many of the tall people had intermarried with the, uh, with the Lenape people, and they created a new race of people that had civilized giants walking among them that we call the Adena. And it's from the Adena that we were able to retrieve most of the bone evidence of giants. So it was difficult to retrieve this knowledge of what had happened previously. And so those legends you hear about the Nahulo, they were um, partially parts of the Allegheny people that um, basically never ended, never survived. So there was also a second movement of very tall and statured people about a thousand years later, starting about the year zero or the year 100 B.C. They left the Ohio Valley 
and they went to the east. They went to the Ozark Plateau out to the west. And there they they formed the um, what we call the um, the Osage people, who to this day still have seven footers among them. <laughs> and uh, to the east they formed, uh, you know, Passaconaway's people. We found many many remnants of. Seven, seven and a half feet tall. That's where the Smithsonian got their skeletons in the east and the Midwest. And then down south, there was a whole race of people who basically were the, the leader, played leadership roles. And we have accounts from the Spanish, which, by the way, I got from Steve Quayle, mm-hmm. talking about um, how the DeSoto and those uh, people were, were just astonished at the chieftains of right. many of the tribes. They were of gigantic stature. Well, even, well, even, yeah, even Tuscaloosa, you know, the, the chief right. of the Alabama, I mean, he was, he was supposed to be seven and a half feet tall at least, so. Probably, probably was. Yeah. And, uh, but because they have been doing a lot of inbreeding, keeping the gigantic stature alive from, well, I mean, we're going back 9,000 years, right? Yeah. Or, or let's just say, to be on the safe side, we'll say 7,000 years, 8,000 years. And that much inbreeding makes you vulnerable to smallpox. Yeah, and that's why. The well, it, well, that down. a lot of inbreeding also causes other problems like uh, um, extra digits on your fingers and toes and feet, and I should say hand, hands and feet, extra fingers and toes, and and you know um, madness. Too much inbreeding, as we can see in certain parts of the world today, um, certain cultures, they marry their first cousins over and over again for for hundreds and hundreds of years. They have uh, short fuse, let's say. It actually is proven that it does um, cause a lack of self-control, mental illness, um, outburst of rage, that type of thing. Do you think that could have played a role in what happened? Yeah, there, I mean, there's a one story about a um, a chieftain who lived on a Martha's Vineyard that was passed down to the white people, and he was practically a cannibal. I mean, this guy was, was so got so angry. Um, of course, he was being attacked by uh, the Mohawk, but he kept his people safe. I mean, yeah. he made them toe the line, but he was supposed to have been absolutely terrifying when right. he lost his temper. And he was a giant. He yeah. was a giant guy. So, yeah, there was a lot of inbreeding, and, and that's one of the reasons why they don't exist anymore. But when yeah, you, it, when you, you go back... You said, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you said something interesting when you said that they were called the Watchers by some of the tribes, which ties in with the biblical Watchers, and who were the sires of the Nephilim, who, of course, are hybrid, partially human giants. Um, it, it, right. It's a very similar theme, very similar story. Yeah, in, in America, they don't call them the Nephilim, they call them the Nunahim. Mm-hmm. The Nunahim are the watchers over the native people here, but they're the same as the Nephilim, I guess. They're just, you know, indigenous to this continent. Mm-hmm. And they they still exist. They, they're they able to appear and disappear at will. They take the form of anything they wish, anyone they wish. Um, they're the Bigfoot. You know, we talk about Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And whenever, um, whenever a white man or somebody that has no business doing so, uh, comes near a sacred site, a sensitive area, mm-hmm. they will um, sometimes dissuade them by becoming Bigfoot and cause them um, 
to cause people to move their attention away from the sacred area. Right. Well, Bigfoot is a, gi- is a giant, really, if you think about it. Yeah. So. Native, savvy Native people will tell you that Bigfoot are men. They're, they're just, uh, they look yeah. real hairy. Right. But the Nunahim also accounted for in Mooney. Um, they came to the aid of um, the Cherokee and the Shawnee on many occasions. And um, uh, several centuries before the white man invaded, the, the Nunahim uh, knew that um, the white man was coming, and they sent their messengers um, through the native totems, you know, and sometimes mm-hmm. they Actually, they would take children into their world and let them spend the night with them, feed them, and make them feel very comfortable. They wouldn't appear to them as giants. They'd appear to them as normal-sized people. Right. And then the child would be taken back to where he was taken from, and the child would find that he'd been gone for longer than he thought. Right, and right. And that, that's, a, that's a common motif in both uh, various types of fairy folklore and abduction yeah. folklore and also UFO folklore, which which kind of leads to my next question. Do you think that there's any connection between this ancient race or the Nunahi or the guardians of the land or whatever you want to call them? Is there any connection between them and UFO encounters? Well, here again, this is where meditation comes in handy. As soon as you say UFO, there's a whole bunch of mechanistic crap coming in. Yeah. You know, people, you know, and if we can just eliminate all the machinery and the technology and all that silly crap for a second, and you're talking about a UFO, we're talking about an ethereal vehicle, talking about um, a... A method of moving from point A to point B that can turn on a dime, can move faster than light, and can um, even be appear to be at two places at once if it wishes. This is a normal means of travel in the higher regions of our planet. Most every individual or family of individuals or government uh, connection in the higher or etheric planes of our planet um, has access to these cars, just like we have access to cars. We're sort of living a shadow parallel existence in our three dimensions. (laughs) So, yes, there's a a connection between the Nunehi and UFOs, but not the way people think of it. You know, you have to get rid of all of the clutter that's keeping our perceptions from being direct to the what we call the etheric world or the fifth dimension or whatever. So, you know, before I was going to finish my thought, I'm sorry. Go ahead. On, on um, if I can, if I can recall it now, on um, you know, I was saying the child was kidnapped. Right, but uh, the the Cherokee and the Shawnee kept the faith in these people alive, so that uh, centuries before um, the white man invaded, and this is a true story. This is in Mooney. It's one of those beautiful little things. 
Um, and after this, remind me to tell you about the repository system in the eastern United States, and then we'll get into some deep stuff. Um, they sent messages out to the people, to all the villages, and they said, your, your time as free people is coming to an end. You may come and live with us if you wish. And uh, it was very desirable. And many, many of the Cherokee people and the people that lived in the South especially were taken in to the internal world, and they never came back. And this all happened before the coming of the white man. The ones that didn't, um, they, the, the stories came down through uh, Indian sources that said they regretted terribly that they right. did not take the advice of the Nunahi and go in. Well, even, that, you know, even that's what happened with the, with the Inca, right? I mean, the Inca fled into tunnels and just disappeared from history. Um, yes, these things happen. Yeah, so here's my question for you. Do you think that they, that the people that fled in that manner, that they were taken to a higher dimension, a higher state of being, or did they go into some other part of the earth, some hidden part of our biosphere where they now still reside? I mean, what do you think happened? Yeah, they, they, they reside in a world that's flush with life. They have moved out of a world that has a dearth or a, a, is very lacking in vitality and life right. force back into a world where you can breathe and you, you're in, your inner organs work properly and right. you can live to be as old as you want. I mean, this sounds like a too good to be true to us because we're so inculcated with the belief that we're inferior, mortal, and we're just infected with so many diseases of mind and spirit right. that we can't, we can't begin to understand that our legacy, our inheritance, is one of paradise. So what do you think is the best way for us to obtain copious amounts of mana, of uh, orgone, of prana, whatever you want to call it? What's, what's the best way for us to uh, obtain this on a, on a regular basis? Well, first of all, you want to make sure that the military-industrial complex doesn't try to steal it and weaponize it. Yeah, no kidding. And so once you do that, if you can figure out how to do that, um, then you begin to uh, privately instruct people who have removed impressions from their minds that would take them away from the right understanding of it. But you would basically restore the Manitou, you know, um, the, or a Manitou system. It starts with meditation. You must learn the art and science of focus for long periods of time without flinching, without moving, in the comfort of your own home. Get initiation from a, a living saint of some sort. Uh, and then um, once you've uh, acquired a certain amount of internal um, internal. F- re-establishment re, uh, of life force. Uh, love, in other words. When you begin to love everybody um, and you have some insight to the technology, then you want to find a place, and we think Serpent Mound is an ideal place to start. You start with the Serpent Mound because it's in the middle of a, of a large meteor crater, so it has access to a lot of Earth electricity. And... Um, you find 
the way to restore the earthwork into uh, not just an earthwork, but uh, a work that has um, the proper uh, accoutrements, if you will. The sun disk has to be laid back over the earthen oval because that was just a platform for it. And then where the little triangle is at the top, and this is just a typical Manitou. It's an ideal one, but it's typical. There's a, 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 a pyramid, probably about 31 feet high, and then behind the sun disk and the pyramid, flat on the ground in a linear way, is the head of the serpent where the, um, the two currents blend. And then the serpent has seven beautiful coils that go down for about a quarter of a mile. And then they curl, it curls at the end and goes into the earth. So the mana is sort of uh, brought together in the sun disk. And it's brought down from the sky by the pyramid which has um, a crystal at its top. Now, as soon as I say the word crystal, there's a lot of laughter coming from people that say, oh, he's a new ager, you know, he collects crystals. But the fact is that our native people treasured crystals because they were part of their paradise lore. Now, every pyramid has to have a crystal or some sort of crystalline metal at its apex in order to translate the energy of the earth, this positive electromagnetic energy, into a fine music to invoke the negative charge from the sky without it becoming lightning, to invoke it in a certain way where it just comes down in sheets from the clouds. And then these two currents, one coming up from the bottom of the pyramid and one coming from the sky, blend and they go into the sun disk, which is made to a specific um, dimension so that it resonates to a, a certain tone. And this tone is actually the tone of the phi ratio. It's the only ratio that all geomonts agree upon is universal. Everybody has their pet frequency and this and that, but the phi ratio is the one universal. And uh, the tone that it makes is well, it's sublime. And it, it um, sets the land into a rapture. And then all the energy that's left over after the sun disk puts out its tone. And this tone, by the way, purifies the air in thick waves. And it just goes out until all the oxygen and nitrogen we breathe is totally seeded and integrated with a with a, a just a flush of ether, of right. not chemical ether, but the ether that the angels breathe in. Well, is there any way to, to do this on a more personal basis without having to rebuild ancient machinery or ancient uh, technology? Is there a way that in one's own personal life that one can attain this state of high intensity, the high alertness, health, and so on? Yeah, through through meditation and and deep reverence for Christ. Now I'm not I'm not I'm talking about Christ power. You know, somebody's going to say, well, he's just a Jesus freak. But I'm talking about Christ power. You know, the power that made all of the founders of all the religions the way they were. Whether you're a Mohammedan or a, or an aspect of Guru Nanak, or if you love Buddha, or or Jaladin Rumi, or you know Moses or Jesus, it doesn't matter. It's that power.
power, that single unifying power, and that's the power of love. And if you want to contact it personally, yeah, your own self, you so do you it think that you think that of love. you think that that of all okay of all the religions that you name there, I'd say that love is a major component, except for one. And having studied all those religions extensively for many years. I will, I will say that Islam is not a religion of love. It's a religion of wrath, vengeance, um, uh, warfare, dominance, uh, s- slavery, submission. So I don't really see that there's any Christ-like aspect to it whatsoever. In fact, it's just the opposite of everything Christ stood for. Um, but, you know, that means that... The problem with Islam is, is that it has very bad teachers. They don't have to be the way they are. Uh, no, its founder was a rapist, a murderer, a thief, a liar, a slave taker, a pedophile. So he, his example is the one they're, they're commanded to follow. He's called the perfect man. He personally executed hundreds of people, took wives, other people's wives and daughters as his sexual slaves, gave them, he stole his, he stole his relatives' wives for his own. If they, if, if they didn't want to give it to him, he said, oh, oh well, wait a minute, the man in the moon said I could have them. So, you know, this guy was a psychopath. Um, I don't, so I don't disagree I, with There's, you. there's no love there. And that, that's why there's the problem in the world today with that particular group, and it hasn't changed in 1,400 years. But that being beside the point, if you want to talk about Christ's power, well, let's look at what Jesus Christ said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father or enlightenment or salvation, in other words, but by me. But you have all these other groups that say, oh, we're part of the Christ this, we're the Christ consciousness, we're the, oh, Jesus was on the Galactic Council, Jesus is an avatar of Vishnu, he's another form of Krishna, all this hogwash. When Christ said, I have nothing to do with them, they're all liars. There's no way to come to the Father but by me. So how does that tie in with this whole idea that you're talking about and using the name of Christ for that? Christ's power is the power that all masters have. According they, to who? When they bring back. They, why do they, they want to glom onto the name of? Why do they want to use they, the name of bring, Christ? They, is what I'm saying. Well, first why, of all, why, why, first of all, as far as Islam goes, I'm going to go back on your points. You're filled with hate. No, no, I'm not. I'm filled with facts. But you're filled with facts. Hate. But it's, yes, it's I am. I am giving you a factual evaluation. Okay. Do you want to this. argue, or you want you want to listen to me? No, I'm, I'm listening, but, but when I hear you say that, you know, Mohammedans have a Christ-like anything, it's a lie. It's, it's, it's not accurate. Let's put it that way. Well, Sec- Secondarily, if you're going to say, why don't you say a Krishna consciousness? Why don't you say a Buddha consciousness? And I'm not trying to be a religious fanatic. My point is this, that you have a man who said, I am the way the truth, and the lie. He even said, if anybody else tells you that they're me or, or, or they're like me, they're lying to you. That's, that's in the New Testament. No, okay. well, that's, that's just flat out not true. Yes, it is true. Never, okay, 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 Mike. Give, give him a, Mike, give him a chance to you know, sure. uh, say, say his point. But, but okay. anyway, anyway, I guess go, my point is... You want to keep talking, go ahead. I'll, I'll just, uh, you know... No, no, I'm just, saying, I'm just trying to figure out how Christ ties into any of this. I'm talking about Jesus Christ Himself. No, no, you said Jesus Christ. That's right. You're talking about you're talking about the messianic 
Christ. Well, that's that's what Christ means. It's the Greek form okay. of the word of the word Messiah. Yeah. Well, you know, let's go. Have you have you read the mystery of the serpent mound? Is that your, your book? Yeah. Yes, that's his book, Mike. And I need to read it though. I would actually okay. like to read. Well, it. don't don't worry about it if you haven't read it. In it, I discuss Christ's power and the, the power of Christ, and I'm very. I mean, it's very difficult especially in point of fact that you're absolutely right about Muhammad. And the reason I said Muhammadans was because behind all of that, and I know that all men are created equal. Right, all I agree souls are created yeah. equal. There is the same power, and that's the power that we're most familiar with that Jesus brought us. But to exclude anyone from the possibility of salvation, and I know you right. weren't doing that. No, I'm not doing that at all. I, I, no, I you're not that doing that at all. I think that what but you're getting at it, in it have, what I'm getting at no, it. Let me thing. finish. Let me finish, please, please. Sure, go ahead. And me keep my train of thought. I, I'll make sense if you listen to me. I'm not trying to to filibuster. Sure. sure. If we can just share that Christ power with the world without saying you have to become a Christian to do it, then we might make more headway in the long run. Now, nobody likes the Muslims. I mean, they make headlines practically every day because they're a bunch of marauding, raping idiots. Yeah. I agree. Now, they they knew, if you studied Islam, they knew they had that problem as soon as Muhammad died. I mean, right. while Muhammad Absolutely. was still alive. They knew. They've always had a problem between the Shiites and the Sunnis. And right. between the two of them, they they have so much hatred that they can't do anything but go out in the world and kill and maim. And, and right. they even interpolated their own scripture. And I believe it is an interpolation. Of course, many wouldn't agree that you have to kill all the infidels. I know all that stuff. Right. Okay. Right. So, around the 12th century, because of much prayer, they sent um, Jalaluddin Rumi, the master power, sent Jalaluddin Rumi to try to right the wrongs of Muhammad, and he did a what we, we thought that everything was going to work right, and by this time, the scriptures would have been, you know, properly revamped and so forth. But it only created another sect right. that's associated with Islam. But the if you... The Sufis, right. And right. the Sufis were the one hope of... I agree. You know, I of all this filth being driven off the earth. It, it, you, know, and, you know what? My, my thing is about this whole thing, and I know I'm not trying to interrupt you here, but... Buddhists and Hindus can live together peacefully. Buddhist, Hindus, Christians, they all live together peacefully. You know what I mean. But yeah. you throw that one element in there, and that's the one element that cannot coexist peacefully with anyone. And whether it's, you know, New Age, uh, Asatru, uh, pagans, all these groups can coexist equally together and live peacefully together except for that one group. And so, yeah, I, it just it strikes a nerve with me because I used to actually live in that part of the world, 
and I saw mm-hmm. firsthand what they do, and that was when I was a kid. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's sad. And like you said, everybody needs salvation. Everybody deserves love. That's what it gets down to. Yeah, so, if, yeah, if, they get... can't, if they can't love other people, they, but they have and to be able to love them, themselves, too. Absolutely. And it gets back to the question that you asked me. I was, you know, I, I used the wrong word, and it set you off. But, you know, I, I can't blame you because I have the same feelings, you know. Yeah, but the yeah. point is that if we want to contact that power, the Christ power within ourselves, right? you don't have to join a Baptist church. You have to get down on your hands and knees in the privacy of your own home, or you have to sit quietly and just focus and invoke the name of the Lord until the tears just keep running from you until you can't cry anymore, and just yeah. cleanse yourself with the water. And that's how we can prepare ourselves to make the first Manitou. And then we can externalize that same power into nature. And that's what I think my work is about. That's what, right. That's what I believe my work is about. So I have a firm and deeply abiding faith in Christ. Right. And in, if you in, in your me, book, I'm sorry, but in your book, do you have a sort of a, a, a guideline on how once if we can achieve this state of, of, I don't know what you would call it, a state of, of, I would call it responsibility and, and awareness of what we're supposed to do. How do you go about recreating the Manitou itself? And by that, I, I mean the system, the, the technology, all, all of that. What, what do you need? What do we need to do to do that? Okay. First of all, we need to have Christ come back. In, in a Western body. Right. And let's, let's just say hypothetically that Jesus returns in another body. He's born in the West. And he's a perfect man, you know. He's sent by the one God and all the other masters um, believe in him. He's supposed to be the oldest. And, you know, the one that incarnated is Jesus. He's supposed to be the king of all the other masters. And so they all agree that this guy, who is also supposed to have been Adam, I think, is what I understood, um, is, is the one that will come to teach us how to restore Eden. And it's only through his instructions and through his words and through his example that we become ready internally and externally. But I truly believe that he is here among us now, that he hasn't revealed himself yet, but that he will begin to teach, and and this teaching will not result in his being crucified this time, but that he'll live to be an old man and remain youthful, and he'll um, be able to bring many people into these uh, into the Christ consciousness and restore what Native people believe is Turtle Island, what I think is uh, Eden. And... Uh, you know, I believe that the Serpent Mound is the remnant of the Manitou that was once the Serpent of Eden. Right. That um, was, was uh, the last thing that worked in the garden, and when it was, when it was extinguished by the hand of God, hmm. it was made to crawl on its belly. But still it contained all the knowledge in it, and that's been my work is to decipher the astronomy and the geometry, the geology right. of the serpent mound. To prove so do you that think that there's? 
are there still hidden mysteries there, things that are possibly subterranean or, or something there that can still be unlocked? That's the thing. The One of the illuminations, if you will, that I was given was that from up into Canada, all the way down to the Gulf in the eastern United States, and in fact in other places all around the world, but really thick in the eastern United States, there has been protected by the Nunehi, um, who Quayle would refer to as the Nephilim, <laughs> protected from their fifth dimensional advantage point. These artificially created caverns and repositories where everything that was once on the surface that made Eden or Turtle Island the ascended country that it once was mm-hmm. um, um, are very carefully cataloged and will be brought out again at the appropriate time under the watchful eye of the Lord and many of those who have served the Lord as the Nunahi in the higher uh, physical dimension, and the, you know, I guess you would call it the etheric dimension is what I'm fond of. And um, these repositories, there's over 160 of them, mm-hmm. and some of them are very large, and some of them are relatively small, but they're all um, in some way accessible from the surface of the Earth, mm-hmm. although they have been extremely cleverly concealed. And like I said, whenever, you know, somebody was going to dig a foundation somewhere or cut through a mountain they weren't supposed to or create a highway, uh-huh. they've always been dissuaded by the uh, higher mental faculties still. Right, but something by. something anomalous happens to... Exactly. To, uh, yeah, sure. I agree with that. I, I, that. That happens all over the place, all over the world, actually. But here, here's my here's my question. Don't you hope that it's not the Smithsonian that finds them? <laughs> I think it's all controlled by Christ. I think the Christ power is an absolute power. I yeah. think the God power is unapproachable. And that anyone who, who thinks they've stumbled across a repository has only fooled themselves. And anybody that has, well, you never hear about them again. You hear about the story, like the one in the Grand Canyon, you know, yeah. the one that, yeah. that was an old repository of some sort, but sure you never it was. hear about it again. You know, it's just, they just, you know, and the, you think the government knows about them? I, I doubt they know much, because it's not the the government that we think of that controls them, it's the higher government. Yeah, and I sometimes, uh, yeah, I sometimes think that the government acts more out of fear than it does anything else. Yeah, that's how it works. And, and you know, the money people, you know, the Rothschild, I'm sure you're familiar with all that. Oh, yeah. They, they're they the ones that are the anti-Christ kind of mentality. They're the ones that think that if you can control all the gold, you can control the people, and therefore you can control what they believe. It's a lie. Yeah, I agree with you. And, yep. and the, re- the return of the Lord, and she'll come back too, the Lord has as his wife, and I believe that she was Mary. Not his mother, but, you know. Magdalene. Not the prostitute either. (laughs) I think that was interpolated into the scripture, but that's just my opinion. Um, The two of them will come back, and and they will restore the garden, and they will will pay 
um, in a very sweet way for all the sins that have accumulated since the fall of the garden. Now, there is a, you know, there are some Christians in the United States that believe that Jesus was Adam and that he was the first Christ and that um, he died and humankind became full of sin. But that when Adam came back as Jesus, it was the beginning of a new story. And that when Jesus comes back for the millennium, the beginning of Turtle Rising, which, if I might incorporate a New Age belief, was the 2012 date. I believe that that commences the time of the beginning of uh, between a 1,000 and 1,200-year period when the, the garden will return and the Lord will return. Um, when when this thing when these things manifest, then um, we will we will see um, the the whole world eventually fill up with light, and, yeah. and this will this will go on until what's today's date? Let's see, this is um, uh, 2014. Uh, it'll yeah. go until 2013. Yeah, yeah, 2015 or 3015 yeah. at least. So well, that's it, why it, I think he's here now. I think he's yeah. here now. And, and and he's going to make himself known, but he but he probably won't operate so much politically. He'll just get politicians to believe in him. Right. But he won't well, when you look at everything come. that's going on in the world today, and all the upheavals and, and the rapid changes, and the economic chaos is, I think, is still to come. Probably this year. You you remember the the uh, the old saying that you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, and I think. What, <laughs> I think we're about to see see a, a whole hen house full of eggs broken with what's coming down on this planet. Yeah, it, it ought to be sweet. Now, Native people say that when the phoenix rises, because the country was in the shape of a, like a great, the great seal, you know, like yeah. a great eagle. They mm-hmm. say it's a thunderbird or you know or a phoenix, but its That's head cool. is the state of Michigan, and it it begins to become visible again. It has seven mighty golden cities. That's we have cities already over them. The, the base one is Tallahassee. Then the one that goes over the you know, the sexual area is uh, Atlanta. And then there's um, the one um, near Oak Ridge in Tennessee. That's like the solar plexus. And then huh. Lexington is like the heart. The Cincinnati Dayton area is the throat. And then Lansing, Michigan, has the all-seeing eye. And then the, the crown of the head of the grand man is um, Sault Marie. And all this becomes to re-manifest, and it was the way ancient Eden used to look. It was like a living man that drew all the energy of the magnetic field out of the earth, combined it with the energy of the sun and the clouds, and produced an enlightened island that literally re- restores life to the whole world. And he'll be seated, probably, you know, I don't know where he'll be living, but he'll be living there. He'll be a living man. You'll be able to go to him and talk to him and everything. It's just my belief. And and um, also, um, he'll send ambassadors to every corner of the world, just like they did in, when he was Adam, and try to mm-hmm. bring peace, and he'll succeed. At least for a thousand years, and then we, we need a thousand years of peace, don't we? We could use it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we could. All right, well, Mike uh, Ross, uh, I'm going to have to uh, uh, wrap us up here. Uh, we are out of time, 
And uh, so, Ross, uh, why don't you tell our audience, is there uh, any place online uh, that uh, they can uh, find out more about you, your Facebook page, website, something like that? Yeah, anybody can friend me on Facebook. I'm Ross Hamilton. I have a picture of the serpent sleeping, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The serpent is covered with snow on my Facebook picture. Oh, cool. uh, And so, you know, I just, uh, you know, extend a friendship invite and I'll, I'll accept you. Okay. And I don't and, care. I don't care what religion you belong to. I don't care what color color skin you have. Alex. There you go. And uh, uh, where uh, where can we uh, find your books? Are they on Amazon? Yeah, um, you can you can get my books uh, on Amazon dot com. You can go to Ancient American um, Bookstore and, and order them through there. Also, you can get a free copy of a Tradition of Giants, which documents the giant skeletons found. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And that's for free at academia.edu. Tell them again what that's called, Ross. It's called A Tradition of Giants. Wow, that sounds good. Yeah, it's 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 an yeah it's it's an excellent uh, uh, paper, by the way. I've uh, I, I've read that and really enjoyed it. So I encourage. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out for sure. All right, cool, you guys. All this right, well, thank you, Ross. Hang on for just a second after the end of the show. No. Okay, hang on. Yeah, stay stay on the line here. All right, everyone, you've been listening to uh, the Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Our guest tonight has been Ross Hamilton, who I hope will uh, uh, come back again in the future because there's a, a lot more that uh, we definitely can talk about on this subject. So, thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for another fascinating show. So, good night. Mm-hmm.